I cannot uh, convey the excitement that I have to share with you about the book of Obadiah. I know most people, that doesn't come to mind when you think of Obadiah. You think of, where is that located in the Bible? Um, We're going through the entire book of Obadiah today. And if you've never read it, it's only 21 verses long. So it's very short. Initially, I thought this is going to be very easy. It's very short. But um, as you'll see here in a bit, I'll, I'll preface this before I actually get into the sermon. About half of my sermon today is just background information. And then we actually get into Obadiah. So just bear with me for a bit. So before we actually jump into this, we're going to pray and then get straight into it. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are the ancient of days. And what a statement. God, you always have been. You always will be. And Lord, we we are blessed to know you, to be called your children. And so, Lord, your children have gathered here today in your name to hear from you. So, Lord, as we just open up your word and look at the book of Obadiah, I pray that you would just speak to us powerfully today. Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Obadiah, awesome book. Now, uh, Obadiah is, uh, there's not a lot known about this prophet. He is uh, not quoted in the New Testament. Uh, There's no really extra biblical references to him apart from his name, Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh. Um, Obadiah is unique that, and he doesn't talk about Israel exactly, but rather it's a message of judgment from God to the people of Edom. And like many minor prophets, Uh, There is a message of judgment, and then there's a message of hope. So we see both of those things in there. And I say minor prophet, not because this book is not important, as in it's less than the major prophets, but rather just because it's only 21 verses. You could literally read this in three minutes. We could just read this for three minutes, and then, you know, we would be gone. But then you wouldn't, you know, we're not going to do that. So um, Obadiah, before we, oh, that's, how did that get there? Let's just skip right through that. I don't know what happened there. (laughs) nothing to do with Obadiah but Obadiah so in your in your notes there there's uh it's there's different sections the first section is background that should have probably been like half the page so again half the sermon is literally just going to be background information so we're going to talk about Obadiah before we jump into that we have to go all the way back to Genesis so turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25 that's where we'll begin today So we're going to go all the way back to the patriarchs, look at Abraham, Isaac, who married uh, Rebekah, and then they had twins, Jacob and Esau. And so Jacob's name was later translated, changed to Israel, and Esau's name was later changed to Edom. And so that's where we uh, that's where we get the Edomites here. So Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. I love the sound of flipping pages. It's very good. All right. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23 here. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. We keep reading verses 24 to 26 says, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which literally means hairy. Okay? (laughs) Go figure. Um, 
Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, so that's, that's where this all begins. The story of Obadiah, the story of the Edomites, begins all the way back, the very beginning in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and we have Jacob and Esau. Now, I'm a really visual person, so uh, I, for those of you who, who maybe don't quite know the story super well or just need a little refresher, it's a family tree here. We have Abraham there, and then we have Isaac who married Rebekah, and then we have Jacob and Esau. This is Jacob's family tree. And from there, we have the 12 sons that he had, plus uh, his daughter. And then uh, this is what is later known as the people of Israel. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And today we see Israel uh, is still around. God keeps his promises. He maintained his people. But what we're going to focus on today is the other side. So you have, once again, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, and then you have Esau here. So his twin brother. And from here, we have all his descendants, and, and we don't have a whole lot of time to get into all of that. But what, what I do want you to know is this. Esau's descendants ended up being the enemies of Israel. We see time and time again that they uh, oppose the Israelites, that they fight the Israelites. You see Amalek uh, right there on the bottom there, uh, that's where the Amalekites come from. And another important thing to note is we have here the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Hittites. These were idolatrous, wicked people that God's people were not to intermarry with. And if you look down here, we have Esau right here, who ended up marrying Canaanite women, and we'll talk about that in just a sec, and that is where you get the Edomites from, okay? I'm visual, so I hope this kind of helps you kind of see a little bit of where all this comes from. So let's back up just a bit. Um, we, we go into Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. Again, it says that there's going to be two nations warring in the womb, uh, me, two nations warring within you, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, why is that? So fast forward a little bit to verse 29. And we see this. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. So Jacob and Esau, Jacob was more of uh, someone who stayed home and, and Esau was more of an outdoorsy hunter's guy. So he comes back after something like this and, and, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. Edom literally translated as red because of this red stew. So he was so hungry, so famished, and then Jacob says this, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, when we read scripture, in order to understand what it says, what it means, we have to, to study scripture well. We need to read it within its context. What's the surrounding chapter say? What's the book say? Who is the author? What was happening uh, in history at that time? What is the cultural context of that time? So when we hear the word birthright, fast forward to today, it's hard for us to really cap, uh, understand what that means. We think, well, inheritance, but that was really just a small part. A birthright in ancient Jewish times was something that was given to the oldest son. And yes, it did entitle inheritance. In fact, it was a, a, 
A legal birthright that gave them twice the inheritance was one aspect of it. A second aspect was uh, they would receive what was called a paternal blessing. The father would pray over the oldest son and bless him when he would die. And uh, the third thing was they would then become the patriarch of the family. So we have a patriarchal society here. And so when father dies, the oldest son now becomes the one who is in charge of the entire family, in charge of mom, in charge of all the important decisions and everything that happens there. That responsibility would fall onto him. Now, this was nothing that they would choose. It's, I mean, no one chooses. I'm going to be born. Is there any, are there any twins here? No? Well, you know, you don't, you, 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 yes, yeah, you don't, you don't uh, choose which order you're in. It's just something that, you know, it happens. So you can't get this. And so this is something that's given to you from the Lord. So that is what a, uh, um, that is what a, excuse me, uh, I lost my place here. Um, that is what a, uh, a birthright is during this time. Now, Esau, having all of this, having the birthright, he says this, of what use is that to me? I don't need it. I'm hungry. I've never been this hungry, um, but I imagine that it was quite a bit. Um, and so there's a really important lesson that we, mo- that we see here. In a moment of fleshly desire, Esau gave up a very sacred thing because of an impulse. Could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, right? But Esau said, no, what use is that to me? No, now it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so a quick point of application here is that a mo- one single moment of fleshly desire and impulse can cause us to lose out on a lifetime of blessings. And this is important for us to hear as young people and as older people. And this certainly goes deep. Now, we find forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He completely, he offers that to us. But I don't want to minimize the severe lesson that is taught to us here, that there are consequences and at times severe ones to our actions. In a moment of fleshly desire and impulse, Esau loses out on a lifetime of blessings. Now, back to the story here. We, we have Jacob and Esau. Esau sells him his birthright. And um, when the time for the paternal blessing comes, Jacob, he, he deceives his father and he gets the blessing and, and he's afraid for his life. So he runs away. And 20 years later, Jacob and Esau, they, they're going to meet again. And you can turn to Genesis chapter 33 for this one here. For the sake of time, we're not going to read the entire section. But after more than 20 years, Jacob is now going to go see Esau again. And he sends before him, he sends all these gifts for Esau. to Because he doesn't know. He hasn't seen him in over two decades to to kind of calm the fear a little bit. And not only that, but... um, but then he puts uh, his family at the very back because he doesn't know if he's going to get into a fight or what's going to go on uh, after all this. But then the moment comes when the brother who you took his birthright, you deceived your own father, and after 20 years, he sees him 
And, and Esau, look at this. It says, verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him. I love that picture there. There's parallels between, again, the cultural context here and then the story of the prodigal son. You remember the father when the son comes through? Does he wait, arms crossed, and I knew it. Now, what does he do? He runs. He runs to see his son. And so we see that here was not something common that you would do uh, in this time, especially someone with the status and, and, and a reputation like Esau. He ran to see him. He embraced him. He fell, embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So there's this moment of embrace. There's this moment of like relief. Because you have no idea what was going to happen. You see your brother. You're kind of ready. Like, is he going to fight? Is he not like what? And then he just runs to you, embraces, and there's this reconciliation. And then, uh, and then uh, they come and they bow down. They show their respects to him. And uh, Esau says, I don't need all these gifts that you sent me. It's like, you can take them back. I don't need that. And then we read in verse 10 here. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. After all this time, we see this embrace, and then there's peace that is made. And, and you can finish the section off there at a different time, but um, it should all end there. We shouldn't have a book of Obadiah. Unfortunately, we know that that's not the case and this doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. A few things happened here. Um, going back to the family tree, all the way back in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham was looking for a wife for his son Isaac, who was Jacob and Esau's uh, father. Abraham was looking for a wife and, and he told Eleazar, he said, uh, go, Look for a wife for my son, but don't go to the Canaanite women. And then in Genesis chapter 28, we also see that when Isaac calls Jacob over and he's giving him his blessing, he says, don't marry a Canaanite woman. Why is that? The Canaanites were idolatrous. They were wicked uh, people. And um, the whole principle we see actually in, in the New Testament, it's actually very clearly written called, it says, do not be unequally yoked. So we see here, the very top, we have the Canaanites, and then here's Esau, who marries two Canaanite women, and these end up being the enemies of Israel and their descendants, the Edomites, as well, which is who we're going to talk about in Obadiah. Now, there's two quick lessons here. I promise we're almost going to get to Obadiah, okay? Two quick lessons here. Number one is, uh, is this. Do not be unequally yoked. And I love this passage here because it's very clear cut. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And, and I work with students, so I hear this all the time. But Danny, what about, no, 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 pause. There's no, there's no but in this. There's no exceptions to this. It is a, a principle that God has left for us for a reason. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? The lesson is this. 
if you're single, if you're uh, widowed or, or whatever, um, find someone who loves Jesus just as much as you do. That has to be the foundation. Now, that's not the end-all, be-all. You see, hey, they have a pulse and they love Jesus. That has to be the one. Like, there's more to it, and I'll let Pastor Sean address that at a later time. But, but at the very least, someone who loves Jesus. And there's a flip side to that, too. You have to be that person that loves Jesus more than anything. And the second quick lesson that we see here is a lesson on forgiveness. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says this. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. There may have been reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. We saw that very clearly. But the bad blood for decades was still there between these families. And it lasted, and there are very severe ramifications to this. Forgiveness unites Unforgiveness divides. There's some of you here today that I know it's hard to forgive and let go. Grudges are are something that can take deep root in our hearts and affect not just us, but our families as well. You ever been offended for something that has nothing to do with you? You're offended because they offended someone that you kind of know on Facebook from like back in high school? And you're like, Yeah, I'm upset with them too. It's like, really? That is exactly what's going on here. We have Jacob and Esau. They made amends. And and then you have all all the descendants there. They they ended up having bad blood with with the Israelites. So, okay, that's the pre-background to the background. Okay, let's, I promise we'll get you home before we see the 49ers make the last touchdown today and win the game. But uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. While you're turning there, um, you can look on the screen as well. Obadiah um, is about the Edomites. And so here we see Edom, and Israel is to the east of Edom. And, and you can't see it on this um, on this chart right here, but all this right here, that's all mountainous region. And so it's very rocky. I'll show you some pictures. It's, it's, it's actually militarily a very, very good place if you can survive. But you got to remember who Esau was. Esau was like, he was born and he looked like Chewbacca. Like he's just very manly. I try to grow a mustache. It just, I get cat whiskers. So that's not me, right? But, but Esau could make this work. And so his descendants, they moved here to Edom. And, um, and this, is, this is what uh, they think is a, probably one of the treasuries. But they built their city like literally in the mountains. Very well fortified. And if you know anything about military strategy, their main, their main uh, cities were located in a place where instead of having wide open land for entrances, it was very narrow. So that provided good strategic um, advantages for Edom because similar to like Leonidas and when he took on King Xerxes, they were able to take on this great army and, and because all didn't matter how far it was just this narrow passageway they had to go through. That was Edom. So they were very, uh, they, they had a great advantage because of um, their military abilities. And look, look how big that is. That's people right there. It's just, I mean, it's huge. Very wealthy as well. Whoops. Uh, they were very wealthy as well. 
Um, and, and I'll touch on that in a little bit, but I do want to show you just a few more pictures because I want you to get a visual. It's very important you see what this place looks like for what we're going to read in Obadiah. And the very well-fortified place, okay? Now, Edom was not only well-fortified, but they were very wealthy. And this is why. They were placed in the middle of what was called the King's Highway. Now, the King's Highway connected this part of North Africa with all of Europe and all of Asia there. So the trade route right there, if you can see that little red line cutting through, that cuts directly through Edom, through Petra and through Mount Seir and, and, and these, these places where, uh, where Edom lived. So they were very wealthy, and because it was a main place for trading, um, oh, that is perfect, um, they were, uh, they, it was a central place for uh, intellectual life, for culture, and so people would actually come and they would bring their money to there. It was like the Switzerland of the time because it was just very fortified. It was very impenetrable. So they're like, we'll leave everything there. So you see at the bottom there, you have the Red Sea and then it cuts directly through um, and that's the King's Highway. Now, let me remind you, the Minor Prophets, this book is about judgment and about hope, okay? There's a message of God's judgment and then the, the hope of God's coming kingdom. And, and Obadiah is all about Edom's fall and God's coming kingdom of peace. Okay, halfway through the sermon, and we haven't even opened up the book of Obadiah. We're going to jump in now. So that's the background information on all of that. Now let's jump into the book of Obadiah. Obadiah chapter, well, there's only one chapter, right? So Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1, 1 through 4. We're going to look at what is the Lord's pledge? What is the Lord pledged to do to Edom? Let's take a look here. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. Now, I had already mentioned that Edom was in a, a place that was very, that had a, a military advantage because of its location, because of the way that you would get in. So anyone who would declare war on Edom would incur significant casualties at the very least, let alone, you probably couldn't conquer it. But this is different. Because this is a divinely ordained and intentional plot from God to bring down Edom. And when God says, thus it shall be, it will come to pass. So we see here that the Lord says, rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. Now why is that? We're going to see a few things here. We see the first reason why here in verses 2 to 3. Behold, listen up, pay attention. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So you see kind of why I gave all this background and these pictures they literally lived in the rocks, in the clefts of the rocks, and they're so high up, and they don't need anyone. That's the pride of their heart. Who's going to bring us down? 
Um, there's a lot of ways you can define pride of heart. Oop. There's a lot of ways you can define the pride of heart. Um, but I love, uh, I love, if you know J. Vernon McGee, and if you don't, you should look him up. He's, he's wonderful. He's like my southern grandpa. Um, pride of heart is, is defined as this. My app is crashing, so you'll have to uh, advance for me. It says, pride of heart is an attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. Let me read that one more time. Pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. And this was exactly what the Edomites were facing. They had so much. They were so strong. And so they said, we don't need anyone. We especially don't need God. Now, so often we see sin like adultery, and we call it for what it is, we say, that's sin. So often we see sin like stealing, and we say, that's sin. Or we see rebellious children, we're like, they're sinning. Um, pride, however, my friends, is something that is almost very rarely addressed, especially within our own hearts. Now, I have met some of the kindest, most humble, and godly people here at Faith Community Church, and I'm not just saying that. I genuinely mean that. And yet, I know that each and every one of us, at one point, struggles with pride. I think of, I think of uh, Job. Uh, go ahead and go to the uh, slide with Job. Um, I think of Job, who was blameless and righteous, and he says this, have I lied to anyone or deceived anyone? Go ahead and keep skipping on. Let God weigh me on the scales of justice, for he knows my integrity. If I have strayed from his pathway, or if my heart has lusted for what my eyes have seen, or if I am guilty of any other sin, then let someone else Eat the crops that I have planted. Let all that I have planted be uprooted. We see here that Job himself, who was blameless and righteous before the Lord, examined his own heart. So church, we ought to do the exact same. Now this is the, the first sin that we see here from the people of Edom, that they had pride of heart. And moving on here to verse 4, we read here, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Whew. That's powerful, powerful language. They were set up so high. They were so strong militarily. And yet, this is the Lord's pledge that he will bring down Edom. And when the Lord says he declares this, this is what will be done. Now, let's look at the Lord's promise, verses 5 to 9. Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? For grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? 
Now, it was customary in this time that when you would harvest, you would do one pass through. And, and you know, we live in a, in a place where you got berries. So you can kind of understand that you would go through just that first pass, right? And then there's always people come back and they do the, the like with blueberries, you come and you pick the second, uh, the second time through. But for them, what they would do is they would just go one time through. You can read about an example of that in the book of Ruth. Um, and they would, leave, uh, they would leave some of the harvest behind for the widows and for um, the poor, and that's how they would take care of them. Um, but looking back at verse 5, we see here, right in the middle of, of the section, if plunders came by night, would they not steal enough for themselves? There's this like parentheses, and it says, how you have been destroyed. The New Living Translation says this, it says, what disaster awaits you? Go ahead and go to the next verse, and we'll see why. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Go to the next slide here. We'll read it from the New Living Translation. It says this, every nook and cranny, every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. So what is God saying here? Another very powerful statement. Edom again was located on the king's highway. Very wealthy, very well-to-do, and the Lord says this, every single one of your treasures will be left with, you'll be left with nothing when God has finished passing judgment on them. Go ahead and go to verse seven. Let's read this. It says, all your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have, they have, uh, sorry, I can't read. What's that? What's that? Prevailed, sorry, my eyesight, I should have worn my glasses. Prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So what's it saying? It's saying even your friends, this is God's judgment. Even your friends will work against you with my purposes to bring you down. The Edomites will be betrayed by their allies and they won't even know it. Let's look at verses eight to nine. It says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau shall be cut off by slaughter. Go back to verse 8 with me, for me for a sec. Will I not day, that day destroy all the wise men? Again, located on the king's highway. They had a lot of wealth. And we just read from that verse that everything... Every nook and cranny will be taken away. There was also a place of great intellectual uh, uh, culture there. And so saying, all the wise men, gone. Next slide. Also talks about here, the mighty men. Remember, their military strength. And God says what? They will all be slaughtered. This is the Lord's promise. That he will leave Edom with Nothing. No more financial strength. No longer a place of, of culture. No more military strength. And no significant influence in the region after he is done with them. This is strong language. Again, this is Minor Prophets, a book about judgment and about hope. And we see the judgment. And man, I got to tell you, the Lord's judgment is not something that you want to be on the receiving end of. Now, we haven't quite seen why. We've seen in verse 2 and 3, we see that the pride of their hearts, they said, we're, we're, we're good, I don't need the Lord, we have it all. So we see that attitude, but, but there's so much more, and really just 
um, horrible things that Edom is, is guilty of here. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 says this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So this is another one of the transgressions of Edom is this. They did violence against their brother Jacob. Now you can write this down. We don't have time to go there today. But Numbers chapter 20, verse 14 to 21, we read after Moses had crossed the Red Sea, he wanted to cut through the king's highway to get into the promised land. And so he asked what would have been their cousins, the Edomites, we just want to cut through. We won't touch anything and anything we, we, we mess with, we'll, we'll make it fine. And, and, and you know what the Edomites say? No. No. Sorry. I know you guys were just in slavery for 400 years and God miraculously took you out of Egypt, but no, sorry. And then he asked again, you know what the Edomites did? They sent out their armies and they said, no. They flexed their strength. You're not coming through here. Uh, there is the, the book before in the book of Amos. Uh, Amos chapter 1 verse 11 says this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword, cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. The Edomites refused to let what happened in the past with their ancestors, Jacob and Esau, go. They're like, no, we remember. We remember what your ancestor did to ours. No. Their anger kindled. They had no pity for them. So they did violence against their brother. Verse 11, let's keep looking at this. It says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. This is the next transgression. They refused to help their brother in a time of need. Israel was attacked and invaded, and Edom, having the ability and the finances to help, did what? I just watched. Like, not my monkeys, not my problem. Just like we read in Amos, they kept their anger and their wrath forever. They could have helped, but they refused. And there's a very practical application here for us. There are times when God's spirit will move in your heart and prompt you to do something, to say something, to act. We have been called to be more than just complacent Christians who sit here and consume and do nothing. There are times when God's spirit will prompt you to act and to move, and to not do so is sin. Sin's not just always the actions and the thoughts we think, but also the things that we are called to do and that we refuse. Now, their next transgression here in verse 12, we see this. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Their next transgression is this. They celebrated the downfall and the hurt of the Israelites. 
Uh, I want to read you another verse from Psalm, and this is, this is, in my opinion, probably one of the most heartbreaking verses that you read in Scripture. There's a lot of really tough stuff we read, but look at this. Psalm 137, verse 7 says this, Remember, O Lord, it's a psalm of lament, Remember, O Lord, the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare. Lay it bare down to its foundations. They celebrated the hurt of the Israelites. They hated them so much. When they saw them getting attacked, not only did they sit back complacent and said, not, we're not going to deal with that. But in fact, they cheered on. They said, yes, finally, bring it to the ground, only to the foundations, men, women, children, everything, gone. Very strong emotion. Now, I want to take it just a step back because maybe... That might not be your attitude, but how often or have you ever said, serves them right, or they get what they deserved? Maybe it's for someone who hurt you, hurt someone you love, hurt your friend from high school back on whenever on Facebook. Maybe something happens to a government official who we don't agree with, and we're like, yes. We joke, we can chuckle about it, but what does the word of God say about this? This was their sin. They celebrated the hurt. Church, we should never celebrate the misfortunes of others. We should grieve for those who are dead in their trespasses and sin who are blinded by Satan and follow his worldview and ideologies. We should pray for them. As Christians, we need to care for their souls. It's a little side note here. I think of everything that goes on in the world and everything that goes on in our nation and, and, and my heart breaks and I think, well, if only this happened, it would be a good solution for this area. But, but then there's this issue here and then there's this one and there's just this plethora of things that are wrong in our nation, let alone the entirety of the world. And then I had this epiphany, which is such a silly thing, because it's so small, but it is really the only thing that will save, and that is Jesus. Until our world, until our nation bows its knees to Jesus, then we'll continue to be on this downward spiral. And I pray for that, and I hope you pray for that. Moving on here, the last one, last transgression. We're almost done here. Verses uh, verse, uh, 13 and 14, we see it says, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his, refuge, his refugees. Do not stand... Excuse me, do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Now we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 separately, but really the lesson is this. The transgression is this, that they took advantage of the Israelites where they were down. And when you read these verses, it, you know, it breaks my heart because these are real people in time that did these things. So if we go back to verse 13. It describes Israel was down and guess what the Edomites did? They went in, they're like, well, let's see what's left. Let's loot whatever's left. After Israel had been attacked 
they took what was left over. And then verse 14, which is really just a gut-wrenching verse, from that attack, you had refugees seeking asylum. Let's go to Edom. Maybe they'll help us. Maybe they'll stretch out their hand. And, and you know what Edom did? Sorry. Doors are closed. Turn back. Women, children that ran there would have seen Lord knows what. Been attacked and they closed the doors and they said sorry. And then they proceeded to plunder the city. These are the transgressions of Edom. And this is why the judgment of the Lord came upon Edom. They were prideful of their heart. They did violence against their brothers. They did nothing as Israel burned. In fact, they actually celebrated its destruction. They took advantage of the situation. They refused the people in need who came to them. And that is why the Lord makes the pledge to bring down Edom and the promise to leave Edom without anything. So now we come to the final section here, verses 15 to 21, the day of the Lord, the coming of the day. Verse 15, we read here, I love this verse. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Can someone say hallelujah to that? Oof, praise the Lord. It gets exhausting to deal with all of the negative news, all of the corruption in the world. And so there's days when I wake up and I'm like, I want the day of the Lord to be nearer than it is right now. Um, and at the very same time, I think my evangelist soul is just like, but until that day comes, there are still people who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear about Jesus. And so until that day comes, we continue serving with our great commission. Go ahead and go to verse 16 says this, I'm going to read the last few verses from the New Living Translation. It says, Just as you swallowed up my people on the holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow up the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all the nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. Let me ask you this, how many Edomites do you know today? Yeah. Next verse. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place and the people of Israel will come back and reclaim their inheritance. Next verse. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is such powerful imagery and it should fill us with awe and wonder and indeed fear. Our God is powerful. Yes, my God is patient. He is loving. He is kind. But he is also just and righteous and dispenses just and swift judgment against those who would foolishly oppose him and his people. I, the Lord, have spoken. Wow. Interestingly enough, in a sad and, and ironic twist, uh, we're almost out of time here, so I, you know, there's four times when, when Israel was attacked pretty, um, pretty heavily, and, and Obadiah was most likely written in the second of those, but, but regardless, even after all this, 
in the time of Jesus, and this is an extra biblical history in the year 70 AD when Jerusalem was being uh, um, attacked and ransacked and burned to the ground, the Edomites actually came to, uh, to assist in the rebellion against Rome. And you know what happened to them? They were completely wiped out. Gone. And that is when we see the pledge and the promise of our God completed because I, the Lord, have spoken. Go ahead and go with me to verse 19 and 20. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess uh, the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. Next verse. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem, exiled in the north, will return home and resettle in the towns of Negev. And this is where the book ends in verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau. That was that place, one of the places of the prominent cities there in Edom. Will rule Mount Esau, Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, I'll remind you that the book of, like many minor prophets, these books are about judgment, and yet there is this glimmer of hope. And I love how this book ends because it's a reminder that our God reigns. And that one day soon, he will return and make all things new and establish his kingdom forever. Amen? That is the book of Obadiah. Very sobering book. Powerful words. Lots of lessons jam-packed in here. Um, but I'm going to call up the worship team, and I thought of no better fitting way than to sing about this, about the kingdom of God established forever. So we're going to close off singing, He Reigns. Amen? Would you bow your heads as we uh, go to the Lord in prayer? God, there is so much that we can learn from the book of Obadiah, and there are so many lessons that we see here. And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you would help our nation to be submissive to you, that you would help us as individuals to be submissive to you, to hear your voice, Lord. God, I pray for each and every one of us here today, Lord, that we would just be intentional about uh, praying for our enemies, about praying for uh, the salvation of those who are lost, about praying for our nation. And Lord, we just, uh, we just lift these things up and we praise you, Lord, because while there is a story of judgment and the sobering reality of what happened to the Edomites because of their transgressions, we at the same time see the flip side, Lord, that you will establish your kingdom of peace and it will be everlasting. Lord, until that day comes, help us to be faithful to your calling to as we go to make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You can stand. You play.